What's up, Fish Sauce family? It's Wilson and Elton, and we're back with another episode of Fish Sauce. Join us on a journey into the minds of successful founders, operators, and investors. As we learn more about their secret sauce, we hope you find yours too. In this second episode of the Female Founder Series, we talk with Tenzin Selden, a Stanford grad, Rhodes Scholar, and founder of Kinstep, a platform to help immigrants find work. But before all of that, she takes us back to growing up in the mountains of India and how her upbringing has shaped her worldviews and now her current mission with Kinstep. What's Tenzin's secret sauce? Listen to the episode to find out. Buon appetito. Mm. Tenzin, it's amazing to have you here today. We're really excited. So welcome to Fish Sauce Podcast. Thank you. It's been amazing and inspiring to see all your accomplishments mm-hmm. and accolades at such a young age. To start, you studied comparative studies in race and ethnicity and minored in feminist studies at Stanford and became the first Tibetan American Rhodes Scholar. Then you spent a career in the United Nations in Asia and now started a startup called Kinstep. What was your experience leading to up to Kinstep and how did you discover your passion while doing so? First of all, thank you so much for having me, Wilson and Elton. I really am a fan of the podcast and happy to be on. I was born and raised as a refugee in India. My, my parents fled Tibet dodging soldiers' bullets and they were able to make to the shores of India. So I carry that experience very close to my heart and everything in my life that I've done since then has really been defined by the, the narrative and history of Tibet, which is one of cultural and physical genocide and one of exodus and preserving my identity and culture. And so my mom actually in 1991 won the U.S. immigration lottery. And so because of that, she was able to come to America. She was one of the 1,000 lottery winners. And the chances of that are just so slim and so unexpected. But it also meant that my family had to be torn apart. It meant that only one person from a family could go so so that the distribution of, of opportunity could be equal. And because my mother went, my father and my, my two brothers and I had to stay in India. And I was raised in a boarding school. So a lot of my life was spent by myself with communities of peers. And coming to America, you know, I I lived in a small hilltop like of the Himalayas. And so coming to America, you can imagine my shock. What I, age did you come to America? I was a preteen. Okay. I was a preteen. So you can imagine like the mountains to then Minnesota. Can you share more about that experience in the mountains? Because I remember when we first met over lunch, you were yeah. just sharing about how you grew up, your house, your home in the mountains, the yes. life that yes. it was. And I think it's so inspiring to hear because I think a lot of our listeners haven't had that experience before. Yeah. Um, so if you could story tell that a little bit, I think it'd sure. be amazing. The, the life of a Tibetan in the mountains of India is, I think, one of resilience. Tibetans are the model minority in India. They've actually done so exceedingly well that they've become entrepreneurs on their own right. They are small business owners, and we have a small government in exile set up in the mountains. Um, that's north of India. So if you go fly from Delhi, it's about an hour and a half away. My life is really quite isolated there. I lived in, I think, tournament walls. But at the same time, I had the sympathy and the connection to the world because every tourist visited Dharamsala. That's where I'm from. Uh, you know, Richard Gere would regularly come there. You'd see him walking in the mountains and you'd see him meditating. You see uh, you know, Steven Seagal. All of these wow. actors would come there Big for time. refuge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was a mix between a connection to the West, but also complete isolation because I, I, I never really interacted meaningfully with anyone else outside of the Tibetan and Indian community. 
And remember, I went to a boarding school, which was even more siloed. And my boarding school was me, the only Tibetan, and maybe one or two other Tibetans in other classes, and then all Indians. So my entire life had been figuring out, like, what does it mean to have an identity? Do I even have an identity? And the process of figuring that out has been one that's been exhilarating and excruciating. When I came to America, I was labeled as an Asian American, and I really never reconciled. And I still, till today, don't quite comprehend and understand the texture of what that means. Because when I came here, you know, I was told that despite the fact that I was a refugee, because of my skin color, I was expected to do well, because I'm an Asian American. I was put in classes and people assumed that I was either Native American or Chinese American. Nobody had ever any idea of what it meant to be Tibetan in Minnesota. Minnesota is like 99.7% white. And so to be in an environment where you are you are seen as the token representation of your community is, I think, a a burden. And that has really defined the experience of of me finding Kinstep. I worked at the UN for a few years where I worked with refugee youth and I worked with migrants. And that experience really led me to come back to America and uh, research what were some of the main issues that immigrants were facing. It's because of the fact that I'm an Asian American and I'm an immigrant and I'm a refugee to this country. Can we dig in a little bit more of the operational aspect of Kinsep? From a tech background, we think of a marketplace almost. We think of labor force, immigrant as a labor force, and we have job um, as a supply side, right? How do you think about reaching on both sides of marketplace? We are a full service provider, so we work with businesses and corporations who ally with our mission and who want to empower immigrants and realize that immigrants bring talent. We ally with them and then match them with very talented, vetted individuals. So what we do is, on the one hand, working with getting the best, most talented employees is we work with community centers. We work with churches. When I was in Minnesota, I realized there's a very large Hmong population that's Catholic. And I was wondering, why is that? It's because the Catholic Church was their first place of refuge and home that gave them food to eat, that gave them a job. And so a lot of them actually forgo their religions that were native to them to become Catholics because that was their only sense of hope and belonging in America. So we, we pair with these churches because we realize they're critical to our mission. We pair with community centers. We pair with people who are in the trenches. President Donald Trump's election, it brought about a lot of fever in terms of conversations. And dozens of companies, as a result of the immigration ban, have come forward to say that they want to exclusively hire immigrants and refugees in their company to diversify their workforce and because they recognize the talent they bring. So we pair with them, the value-aligned companies, to match the two groups together. One of our missions as Fish Sauce is to share the stories of the underrepresented Asian Americans and try to connect those ties so people can better understand who we are and bridge that gap, right? And I think a big part of it is not necessarily emphasizing our cultural backgrounds or stereotypes and things like that, it's really educating those on the other side who don't really understand us. And yeah. by sharing stories like yours, Tenzin, and other Fish Last guests, I think we're able to try to connect those two as much as possible so we can really have cultural integration more than cultural separation. And I think that at a core is, is part of Fish Last mission as we continue to grow and share the stories of other successful Asian American and female founders. Very true. But I, I do yeah. want to say, Elton, I don't think we can reduce it to just like we all need to be open-minded and mm-hmm. we all need to hang out. I yeah. think I think there's 
oftentimes expectation that because of everything that, you know, the environment that Asian Americans grow up in, where we tend to silo ourselves, you know, so I think addressing that requires a multilateral effort. It's not just, you know, let's all be on the internet and be open. I think that's the reason why Trump's presidency has been so toxic and at the same time has brought up about the elements that has never surfaced to the table. It's because we've oftentimes shunned these conversations. What is the first step that people can do? There's two things that every individual can do. First is in America, you're spending habits. People participate in the culture of impunity against immigrants and against Asian Americans without realizing it because they're often paying money to organizations, to companies that have really negative practices that have very, very dark, very secretive and exploitative practices. And if we can be more mindful about how we spend our money, that I think is a very powerful testament. That's number one. What are those companies that you're talking about people are spending money on? Yeah. So uh, I'm saying that the $2 trillion under the table shadow economy has been fueled largely by immigrants. And these are economies that are companies like, you know, Walmart and even the Trump organizations really exploited a lot of those labors. And yet we are okay you know, staying at those organizations or buying T-shirts from there. If we can be more mindful about our spending practices, I think that that would be a powerful first and easy step. And then second is I always encourage people to have reading groups. I think books are a very powerful way to connect with each other. When I was in Minnesota, I was in Twin Falls, and the way that the 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 female white community there was trying to understand what was going on because they had a lot of Somalian and Hmong refugees that were coming to their community and the women there were feeling a disconnect. What they did was they had reading groups from Hmong authors, Asian American authors, from migrant authors, and they wanted to understand what were some of their plight, what were some of their experiences, and I think books are the closest way we can understand each other. Yeah, that's a tricky topic of long-form writing and long-form reading with our social media today and people's attention spans so short they're just sound bites and quick articles you see online and some are relevant and some are relevant and just not in depth enough so i think there's a big challenge there Wilson, I think that my generation, including you two, are part of that, has become so good at borrowing ideas rather than having their own. And that's why I always go back to the classics. Like, I really make an effort to read classical books because they make me ask the questions, like, make me think. Your thesis at Oxford showed that you're, you have a strong interest in the question of identity and whether it's malleable or not, or whether people can have one or multiple identities. And a lot of Asian Americans have this idea of, are they more Asian or are they more American? And are they some blend of it, right? So how should one think about that? There's a TED Talk that I ascribe to when this question comes up often, and that's, don't ask me where I'm from. Ask me where I'm a local. And I really like that concept because... Where I'm from is literally like different continents. So Asian American just happens to be one of the identities. And nowadays, identity is getting more complex, more nuanced, that you can't just place someone in one area. But to ask the questions, where you're local is more relevant, because that means where are you giving locally? Are you contributing to the Chinese community center? Are you giving to your Laos community center? I think that's a more relevant question. What does diversity in technology mean to you, Ray? Being a female founder, being found in a world that is so dominated by Caucasians in general, especially in Silicon Valley? It means that I may be the first 
Tibetan and First Asian American women to do many things, but that I will make sure I'm not the last. That's what it means to me. It, for me, is emblematic that I can never be the last. That there have been so many people who have extended their hand out to me because I'm a minority woman. I can't tell you the amount of support and enablers I've had around me. And really, I don't look at myself as a victim. And I don't have the victim mentality. I'm not like, oh, I'm this poor Asian American female who's working on a social impact company. No, I, I, I use that to my advantage. That enables me. And I have had endless and countless of female mentors who've said to me, listen, I've gone through this. Let me teach you. Unsolicited, never asked. They came to me. And I think it's primarily because of what you said, Elton, which is that when you have a majority group, the minority group becomes strong. They become unbreakable and they help empower each other. And I've seen that time and time across across here in this space in Silicon Valley. Another thing is oftentimes people ask me, why did you leave the UN? Why did you leave diplomacy, international development to come work in Silicon Valley? And the number one reason I give them is hope. They were places that were so dark that I visited. You know, when I was going to Burma and I saw some of the girls that were trafficked. Yeah, I'm actually, um, my last name, K-Y-I, is actually from Burma. Dad was born in Burma, Myanmar. You were? Yeah, so. Are you Burmese? Yeah, so I'm chi- ethnically Chinese. Mm-hmm. So this is the whole complexity, right? Ethnically Chinese. Dad was born in Myanmar, Burma, um, but he moved back to China. And I'm born in Los Angeles. Wow. Very similar. Similar, yeah. Except with, with Laos, right? Right. Yeah. Wow. So when I, when I went there and when I would travel around Asian America, one thing I, I kept seeing was that people would look to the West and to Silicon Valley for ideas, for hope. And I thought, I went to undergrad there. I have a community there. Why don't I just go to the place where everyone's looking towards? Yeah. And that's something I'll never trade. There is a sense that like, if you are in Silicon Valley and you are able to have an idea, that it can manifest, despite whatever your background is. And I think to some extent it's true. We haven't talked too much about the founding of Kinstep yet, mm-hmm. right? And the, the last eight months and the hustle and everything that you've been trying to do. Prior to the eight months, I spent four months traveling across the United States to talk to immigrants of all backgrounds to find out what is the one or two greatest conflicting challenges in their lives. And that's when I found that employment or mismatch of employment was the greatest sense of shame that a lot of immigrants faced. I met this diplomat from Ethiopia, a pure diplomat, and he was a cab driver in Minnesota. And from his experience, I realized the one thing he lacked in America was a sense of integrity and dignity in what he did. It's not that he was shying away from doing any job, despite the fact that he was a diplomat. It was the fact that he felt people were not willing to extend him the opportunity. And I thought, I'm in America. I have access to Silicon Valley. There's all of these ideas that are being funded that are, in my opinion, have no proximity to people's real life experiences. Why don't I take my set of experiences and what I've researched to actually manifest into something. And that's, that something was Kinstep. Adrian Huesca, who's an incredible and brilliant uh, co-founder, she and I together have founded this company. And our main purpose is to give integrity and dignity in people's lives, especially immigrants who have been robbed of it. 
Mm-hmm. And how has that experience in the last eight months been? The the challenges have been, as you both know, since you were startup <laughs> founders, <laughs> has been really the self-limiting behavior and attitudes that we hold, especially me. I had to really question the self-limiting narrative that I held, which was that, Tenzin, are you enough? Can you do this? Are you good enough to do this? I think every single one of us who are founding a company has that, and it's, it's exacerbated when you're a woman of color. It really is. Walking into meetings where the men thought that I was a, the admin or secretary, and I had to be like, no, actually, I'm the founder, and you're mm-hmm. here to meet with the founder. Those are meetings that happen more often than you would like to believe. What were the best conversations? So I hear that sometimes there's a little bit of friction in some of these meetings, but I'm sure some of the meetings went very well. Yeah. Tell me about some of those conversations and what made those conversations so successful. Yeah, some of them, a majority of them went very well. I think that because of the political turmoil in this country right now, a lot of people care. Six months ago, a lot of people were indifferent to this issue. It's like, oh, good, good. You're working on immigrant rights. You're working on getting them employment. Good for you, Tenzin. And now it's like, oh, this actually impacts me, Tenzin. Tell me more exactly what you need from me. It's really been the people who've introduced me to one friend or one friend that's really collectively helped Adrian and I mobilize our movement. Mm-hmm. And the Kinstep as a, as a company. Some of the, the positive things, I didn't get to that. So I don't want to just talk about challenges because overwhelmingly it's been, it's been more rewarding than it has been excruciating. The exhilarating parts of it are really meeting the migrants, meeting the migrants and experiencing their level of spiritual and intellectual humility. The amount of masters and PhD immigrants who are willing to be babysitters and who are willing to take semi-skilled and low-skilled jobs that I would have never, ever expected. It's just been incredible. And they show up to work. I said to Elton before, I said, you can pretend to care, but you can never pretend to show up. And our folks show up to work. And they show up to those meetings. They show up to those difficult conversations. And that, you can never, ever pretend to do that. That's that's a point that I think a lot of hiring managers need to hear specifically because I think that's something that's unrealized. Yes. Right? When you told me for the first time, it actually shocked me and I felt embarrassed that I didn't know that. But once I got that point, then I started to trust even more. And I think other people who are in positions similar to mine potentially need yeah. to hear that because they need to understand like where their hiring funnel is coming from. Right. And I think we, yeah. I'm I'm a victim of this as well, where we've often desensitized their stories. Because we're told that, oh, immigrants are hardworking, they come, they're diligent, they do it. We never ask, where were you before? What was your life like? Who were you? What was your identity? And I get to ask that every single day. And so I've become more sensitive to their stories and narratives. We want to hear more about Kinstab and Kinstab's future. So what does the next six months look like for Kinstab or the next five or ten years or this big dream and vision that you guys have? In the short term, we want to work with as many companies that are value aligned that see immigrant as talented and understand their ability to bring positivity and richness in the workplace. And we also want to hire as many immigrants um, and refugees as possible in the short term. In the long term, we also hope to grow the professional development aspect. We want to make sure that, you know, the questions that you and all of us here, that you two went to USC, I went to Stanford and Oxford, and in these schools, like you get to ask a mentor, tell me about how to deal with a bad boss. 
I don't think oftentimes immigrants and refugees get that same level of mentorship and cultural capital. Kinstep can be an avenue to do that, can provide some of that. Our last question generally for our guests is, what is your secret sauce? Secret sauce to life or? Secret sauce to life as one, and then your secret sauce in general that you like to eat. For us, we just came from the tenderloin and we had some fish sauce. Surprise. And by the way, I don't eat seafood, so it's hard for me to eat fish sauce, it's which okay. a lot of Asian cuisine has. It's, okay. <laughs> it's a figurative. And, you and could just, like fish sauce. And I, I like the reason why, because people are often um, interested. The reason why my family and I don't eat seafood is because as Buddhists, we believe that eating smaller animals, like we value every single life. And it takes my family and I many more shrimps and salmon to, to, to feed us for a month than it does one yak. In Tibet, if you were living in there, you you can sustain a life for, with one yak because they provide you cheese and milk and the food and the fur. The fish sauce of my life would be a quote that I heard from someone I really was inspired by. And he said, define yourself by the best in you and not the worst that has been done to you. I think the simplest and most difficult thing to do often is to go to our negative emotions, our negative thoughts. It's easy to take revenge. It's easy to be angry, but it's much harder to see the best in yourself and to always exemplify your life around that. And that came from New Jersey. It came from the streets of New Jersey. So I'll never forget that. The fish sauce that I like, oh, sorry, the, <laughs> the fish sauce for my, 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 my food or meal would be the Indian achar. Have you guys had that before? Indian achar. Achar is I it's an not. eclectic mix of spices that you, you know how in India mm-hmm. how we yeah. are. We we add everything: cumin, mm-hmm. cardamom. Yeah, it's quite spicy. <laughs> spicy. It's spicy. <laughs> it's it's delicious. We have that with our meals in India. How often? So, every day. You have it every day, pretty much. Tibetans don't. We lived in the mountains, so we were not able to grow vegetation. And because of that, our food is quite bland. But when we came to India, we've had to really blend and evolve our food because our the palate is so different. My family had never even seen a banana. Can you we didn't have we don't have those fruits there. So like they were in India and they were like peeling they're like, what is this? They were like eating it raw like that and oh. this tastes so bad. What is this? Why do they eat this? Without peeling it? I know. Because we've yeah. never seen a banana yeah. in our life. Actually, let's talk about this a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I'm not very, very familiar with Tibetan culture, and I don't think a lot of our listeners are either. Can you describe a little about what the culture is like? Yeah. What food they eat. Just a little bit more color, what it is. Sure. Prior to 1959, Tibet was a free country, but it was the most isolated country in the world. I think less than dozens of people had ever gone to the country because it's the highest altitude in the world. So we're pretty much densely landlocked. Uh, The culture is a combination of being incredibly spiritual. One in every six Tibetans are monks or nuns. They're, they're monastic. Um, they're in the monastic tradition. And so my uncle is that my cousins are monks and nuns. Like I, I'm filled with a lot of people who ground themselves. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fish Sauce. For behind the scenes look and special surprises, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join our email newsletter on our website. Also, if this episode resonates with you, please leave a review on iTunes and share this episode with one of your friends. Finally, shout out to our amazing editor, Christian Edwards, for making us sound better than we actually are in each episode of Fish Sauce. 
What's your secret sauce?